Today's reading is from the New Living Translation of Hebrews 4.14 through 5.9. Christ is our high priest. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He represents their gifts to God and, other, and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gen gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called to God for his work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings, with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are, we're coming out of where we were two weeks ago with talking about atonement theories, which is super heavy and a lot of stuff. We were talking about, like, what does it mean for Christ to atone for our sins, and how does that even look like? Is it any of these things? And so I think someone actually threw the atonement series out as kind of a joke, and the teaching team's like, no, no, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to talk about atonement theories. And then came up with the idea of, okay, we're going to talk about this, but... Um, something I was taught in my graduate program is you can't, you can't just bring something to people and then not have them interact with it in any way. So if you bring something like, okay, we're going to talk about atonement, cool, what, what does that mean? Well, how do I interact with atonement? So this is for this week and the next two weeks until we get to Pentecost, we're going to be talking about the why. Why does all of that matter? Why does the cross matter? Why does atonement matter? And, you know, it's the question of like every two-year-old ever to ask why. Why, why, why? Why? Uh, I think I even heard it a little bit earlier this morning with the children that were just kind of running around. Like, why do we do these things? And let's be honest, we even ask that question today. We're always asking, why this? Why that? Why do we have music on Sundays? Why do we do all the stuff that we do? And we rarely get an answer we like. So, yeah, I'm not going to give you an answer you might like today, but I hope to at least kind of answer it a little bit, maybe. Yeah. So I think it is important to talk about um, when we're discussing atonement and like, what does that even mean? What does it mean for the cross? Like, how does the cross, this wonderful thing we have, I get out of the way, hanging up on this back little plaster wall, like, what does the cross mean and how does it relate to everything we do here? How does it relate to the music? How does it relate to us? Um, so today, I want to focus on uh, probably my favorite aspect of the entire Sunday gathering. Uh, how does the cross relate to the table? How do we come to the table? How does, how does that all interact with? Um, 
And this is the part where I admit, like, it is my favorite topic to talk about and discuss and research. And I get like the little kids that are just like, ah, you know, they get really excited and they, they have trouble getting their words out because they're so excited to tell you what they're talking about. That's kind of how I am with this. And it doesn't help that I've got like eight years of knowledge in my head that I just want to spout out and put inside of your head. And I can't in like 20 minutes. So you have to deal with me trying to figure out how to get eight years worth of schooling out of this mouth and not make it a gobbledy mess. So yeah, too many, too many ideas and concepts. So I, today I figured, let's talk about the Christ as the great high priest, because that is not something we typically talk about a lot. Christ as the great high priest of everything. Uh, so in Engaging with God by David Peterson, uh, one of the many books I've had to read for this, he writes this about Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews presents the most complete and fully integrated theology of worship in the New Testament. All the important categories of Old Testament thinking on the subject, sanctuary, sacrifice, altar, priesthood, and covenant are taken up and related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The idea that Jesus' life was the expression of perfect worship, culminating in his sacrificial death for others, has already been noted in the Gospels and the writings of Paul. More fully than any of these other sources, the ministry of Christ, past, present, and future, is portrayed in Hebrews as the only basis on which we can relate to God and offer him acceptable worship. What others mentioned briefly, Hebrews makes central to his message. That there describes like why Hebrews is my absolute favorite book in the New Testament. Because it relates all of those Old Testament contexts of sacrificial worship, altar uh, theology, and relates it to the personhood of Christ and who he is and what he did. Now, I did seriously consider actually just reading the entire book of Hebrews this morning as like the sermon. Because if you read it to, if you read through the entire book, you're like, oh wait, this just makes sense. Um, and it points out all the things that I want to point out. All right, so Vicky called it out actually. Yes, Vicky, it did. One of the two Browns pointed it out how Christ didn't come from the priestly line of Aaron. That's where all the priests in the Jewish culture would have come from, was the Aaron Levitical line. But Christ doesn't. He actually comes from the line of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? That's not a name you hear often in the Bible. Well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 14 to figure out who Melchizedek is. Um, he was a, Melchizedek was a king of Salem uh, and priest of God, most high. The writers of Hebrews says in chapter 7, he met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and also king of Salem means king of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Christ is called out in the line of Melchizedek as a priest and a king for forever. Not a humanly priest who will live and die and has an ordered genealogy, but that of, that of the Most High, who he has no genealogical line. He's just a priest forever. No record, uh, yeah, all that stuff. So Christ as the great high priest, there's a lot there. Um, but how does that relate to the table? Because I mean, I'm, I wanna talk about the table. We're gonna get there, well, this table here, the little guy that's sitting behind the, the chair, because we don't have a big this in remembrance of me table here, which, you know, <laughs> comes with its own baggage. Um, yeah, so why, why the high priest? Um, we have to remember that during this time, 
from the transition of Old Testament covenantal theology to the New Testament, sacrificial meals were important. The sacrifice itself was important. So the sacrificial meal, um, it was something that was shared between the priest and those who gathered together. So you would come uh, with your one, of, one of your offerings to go to the priesthood, and you either would do a burnt offering, grain, peace, uh, sin, or trespass offering, and you'd work with the priest, and the priest would bless you and take that. Um, this, and between all five of these, a shared meal was important. Um, if you look at all the different types of sacrificial meals that happened in the Old Testament, there is some sort of meal involved, whether it's a meal that you share with the priest, it's a meal that, it's a meal that um, is given to the priest as part of their Levitical duties, or it's something that's taken into the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was held, and they partook of the meal separately, but in accordance with God. Um, I could go into like what every single meal had, like if it was a burnt offering, what type of thing they would offer, but eh. I don't think you guys want to go into, yes, this is exactly how all of the sacrificial offerings were happened, and this is the exact order. I don't think we're into that. Um, so yeah, like viewing Christ as a great high priest means he is the one mediating that relationship for us. So no longer do we have to go to an earthly priest to sacrifice our offerings or give our offerings to. We go to Christ, who is now the great high priest of everything. So no longer do we have to have that earthly mediator in between us and God. Christ is that mediator, so we go to him directly. <laughs> and moving forward, meals were always important. Not only in the Old Testament, they were in the New Testament. Um, I wrote an entire paper of how um, the order of the order that we see in the Gospels for the for the table theology is representative of a Greek dinner and like what that all means and how the order of operations happened and how many cups they drank and where that all happened. Um, all that to say, meals are important. They're a big communal aspect. They're something that happens all the time. So having a meal constantly in all of these sacrificial items and in the Last Supper is significant. Meals were shared um, not just at sacrifices, but they were shared before the signing of a big deal. So when you made a covenant with your neighbor in the Old Testament, you would often share a meal. You would share a covenantal meal with others. I think I'm just going to be ahead in my notes, but hey, we'll get there. All right, skipping ahead here. How have we grown to view the table? Uh, I made this joke earlier, but I'm going to make it again. Uh, we'll get there. So some commentators have taken the statement about the Christian altar as referenced in the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 10.21, as viewing the Lord's Supper as a sacrificial meal. To locate the altar of thir Hebrews 13.10 in the Christian community, however, is to misunderstand the way the writer employs typology, um, all that stuff. Hebrews does not draw the interference or the inference that Christians may even metaphorically eat from their altar or sacramentally benefit from Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Um, it is remarkable that there's no treatment of the Lord's Supper in this context. So yeah, Sorry, I'm just jumbled this morning. I'm trying to jump around in my own notes here. You would think in the book of Hebrews that with as much talk as there is, as Christ is the great high priest and as much ties to Old Testament theology as there is in the person of Christ, there would be some mention of the Lord's Supper. There isn't. 
you, there's no reference to the Lord's Supper or the table at all in the book of Hebrews, which is weird because you think as something as important as that it'd be there, but it's not. Um, but as the commentator, as David Peterson points out in his book, we have kind of shifted the meaning of the table to be our own little altar where we will we go to the table to offer up ourselves. Um, I just reminded myself yesterday about this of, did any of you grow up in a church where you had an altar call at the end of your services every single week without fail? Like, yeah, like it's, it's a thing. Uh, I, I have grown to hate them with a passion. I refuse to do them in anything just because I, I don't like the connotation because typically what, what's the thing that you hear? You're going to offer your sins up to God. You're going to sacrifice yourself you're going to do all of that kind of sacrificial things at the altar of God, which usually the altar means the table. Like, eh, I don't, one, I don't like, I think it's un unnecessary and pointless, but the, it's the evangelical call to bring your worries to the table as a way to offer them up to the Lord. Like you need to sacrifice part of who you are and you need to offer up part of who you are as a sacrificial statement. That's, that's not really jiving with how the book, writer of Hebrews is presenting who Christ is as the great high priest. Uh, but it does place us back into that Old Testament mindset of you have to offer up your sacrifices to the Lord. Yeah, the writer of Hebrews goes to great strides to point out that the method of participation, unlike the altars of the Old Testament, we do not need to bring our metaphorical offerings to be worthy of Christ's redemptive acts. None of that's required anymore. The table is not merely a place where we offer up our sins to God, nor should it be seen as something we just do. The table is not just here as a decorative element. It's not here as a place where we have to come and just bow down and worship and be very solemn and serious. Um, and one of my favorite, one of my favorite offers, um, I'm going to hold this up, Robert Weber in this book. And uh, if you want to know where like all of my theology for worship comes from, it's from here. Well, it's from this guy. Robert Weber, Ancient Future Worship. This is his seminal work before he passed away. Um, he goes through all of this of how, how we should relate to everything in the Christian life. Far from being a mere memorial or empty symbol, the ancient fathers saw bread and wine as a disclosure of Jesus Christ, through whom we see the reconciliation of God and man, of heaven and earth, and of all things. But Enlightenment rationalism has succeeded in taking away the focus of what God does at bread and wine and replacing it on what I do at bread and wine. So it's that, that classical evangelical come to the table and you, you're doing something at the table and it's a you and God thing. So how should the table fit into this idea of Christ as the great high priest? How should we look at the communion time, at the table elements, and see our relationship with Christ as the great high priest and with what the act of remembrance is? So as I mentioned just a few minutes earlier, uh, ancient sacrificial customs had the sharing of a meal prior to the act of sacrifice. That was an important element, it was a ritual element. The Last Supper takes the place for the final sacrifice. So we have the Last Supper prior to Christ's resurrection and death, or Christ's death on the cross, and all that. So, if we look at that theology, as much as it can make sense here, um, 
if we look at the theology as the Last Supper is the signature meal of signing the covenant with Christ, then that seals our bond and seals our covenant with Christ as our great high priest who is mediating with God on our behalf. If you spend any amount of time with me, whether it's information community, because I mentioned it there, um, or just ramblings on, say, Eat, Drinks, and Orthodoxy on Wednesday nights, Fury Works. By the way, it's a great time. You should come. Um, I will mention a couple of things, one of them being um, God's story. So Weber, in his wonderful wisdom, has kind of, he's not kind of, he has laid out, there's a story to the book of the Bible. From creation, where God created the heavens and the earth, he created us in his own image. Fall, Adam and Eve sinned, fell away, and thus separated man from God. Redemption, which is the works of Christ through the cross, and his shedding of blood there for our atonement, and then to the final element, which is recreation, or as I prefer to call it, consummation. Side note there, that fits in my eschatological views, basically end time views of, I don't think that uh, this earth is gonna be destroyed and recreated, I think new heavens and new earth will be combined. If you wanna hear more about that, I will be happy to wax poetic on what that actually even means. <laughs> and how it fits into everything. Um, but the story of everything, the story of Christ, the story of the Bible, is that creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We find that here. We are currently living in the moment of redemption. So from the moment of the cross to now, we're still in this story. That story of the Bible is our story because we sit in the moments of redemption. Christ's acts on the cross, his acts as um, death, resurrection, all of that. And his acts as the great high priest and the mediator between us and God so that we no longer have to rely on earthly forms allows us to interact with that method. Or inter allows us to interact in the redemptive story of Christ and in the redemptive story of the world. Which is a, which means, leads me to a kind of a, a great disservice that we do to the table a lot of times. We view it as simply something that's a memorial, something that should be, it's, it happened in the past, it was a remembrance. And these, the bread and the wine slash grape juice are just symbols. They're nothing more. They're just symbols for something that happened long ago in the past. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that they're just merely memorials or they're merely just symbols. Symbols can have meaning. Symbols, they are symbols for sure, but they're symbols that have deep and long-rooted uh, meaning. My notes are uh, not going down where I need them to go. There we go. There's more. Technology is wonderful, isn't it? When it you know, actually works. So Weber again, because I, I love Weber. At Bread and Wine, God discloses his whole story for those who know how to see. Yes, bread and wine are symbols, but they are not empty. 
The ancient fathers taught that symbols participate in the reality they represent. We do not make a symbol meaningful by ascribing a meaning to it, as the Enlightenment teaches. Instead, a meaning inheres within a symbol because a symbol signifies a reality and performs that reality. Bread and wine signify and perform God's story and communicate the benefits of God's story to us. When we open our hearts, our minds, and our wills to see ourselves inside God's story, to think God's thoughts after him, and to embody God's story in love, we become broken bread and poured out wine to others in incarnation, cruciform, resurrected, and eschatological life. The entire story of God, the entire story of Scripture and the Bible, can be found within the table. So Christ, as our mediator to God, meets us at the table. So what does the cross mean? How, does, how do we interact with the cross at the table? Well, it's just that. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves. We don't have to sacrifice rams or our grain offerings because Christ is being, being that mediator for us. He has paid that price with his blood. And however you believe that the atonement happened, however if you believe that um, penal substitutionary atonement is the way to go or um, any of the other ideas that uh, Melinda shared with us two weeks ago now, that's inconsequential. What is true is that, as the writer of Hebrews points out specifically, it is through the blood of Jesus and through that sacrifice that we have eternal salvation. And Christ is continually representing us on our behalf to God so that we don't have to rely on earthly priests or earthly anything to get access to God or to um, have a relationship that is more than just a barrier. And because we are, we are in this redemptive act and because we're in the middle of it, um, the table is not just something that happened 2,000 plus years ago now. It is not something relegated to the past. It is something that is currently happening. So as I said, um, a lot of covenants were signed with meals. Like that was the Old Testament view, is when you, when you went into a business contract with your neighbor, you would have a meal to, to share that. When we gather together, whether it be monthly, um, quarterly, my preferred method, weekly, um, you are constantly re-engaging and re-remembering what happened. And by re-remembering, I should say reliving. Because every time that we gather at the table, we relive that sacrificial meal with Christ. We are re-signing our covenant again. We are re-remembering what happened and moving forward with what will happen. So I don't view the table as merely a memorial with a basic symbol. Shocker. And I hope that's made clear now. Um, I subscribe to what Weber describes as spiritual presence, which is Christ is not, it doesn't physically turn into the body and blood like transubstantiation, the Catholic view. Um, he's not just around the elements, which is consubstantiation, and it's not just a memorial. Christ is present constantly throughout the entire table, meal, and throughout the entire service. I view it as everything is happening all at once, sort of deal. Christ is here with us now in this moment. 
His presence is here. It's not like we just flip a switch on and he's gone away or he comes in. He's, he's here, like now. So I don't see it's a stretch to say whatever happens with these elements, he's there. Christ is there with us. What, transforms, what nourishes and transforms us of bread and wine is the disclosure of the whole story of God, creation, incarnation, recreation, which takes up residence inside of us as we take and eat, take and drink. For in this symbol, a reality is present, the divine action of God, redeeming his world through Jesus Christ, the calling for us to see that our union with God, and indeed the union of all heaven and earth, is accomplished by God alone in Jesus Christ. In eating and drinking, we experience a foretaste of the supper of the Lamb and the kingdom of Christ's rule over heaven and earth. We become what we eat, living witnesses to Christ who lives in us. So I hope through all my ramblings, I've helped understand something, but um, I don't think the table should just be a place where we, see our, we should be offering ourselves. It's not a place to offer up. We should do that with our just whole being, our whole lives, as Paul called out in Romans. Um, give, your offer, give your lives as a living sacrifice, not just in the one moment. The table is where we can come to meet with and embrace the divine. It is where we as a community come together to proclaim as one our declaration of our confined, continued covenantal community and promise, and where Christ as great high priest through the cross meets and celebrates with us.